This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. What is that stuff? The hell is that? It's oil. Sure as hell is. Holy shit. There really is oil under this graveyard. The ground is dripping. Well, I'll be damned. That you can count on. Remember one thing, gentlemen. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And today... Today's been a real bitch. Oh, shit! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. And I'm Gil Adler. Before we go on, if you're watching or listening to this podcast on our YouTube channel, please remember to hit the like button if you like, and even better, please subscribe. And if you're going to be in Los Angeles this September 30th and October 1st, please join us at this year's Terror Spectacular HorrorCon LA 2023, happening at the Los Angeles Convention Center from noon to 7 p.m. on September 30th and October 1st. Gil and I will be doing a bunch of panels about Tales from the Crypt, and we'll be signing autographs and snapping photos. Come join us and all the other celebrities. That's HorrorCon LA, September 30th and October 1st from noon till 7 at the LA Convention Center. Our guest today, Paul Abiscoll, started in the business as a much sought-after hairstylist. Kind of like George in the movie Shampoo. And they're so great looking, you know, and, I, and I, I'm doing their hair and they feel great and they smell great. That's it. It makes my day. I mean, it makes me feel like I'm going to live forever. And then found his way into directing. He actually is a really, really talented director. Really, the first serious episodic or, or dramatic work he did was an episode of Tales from the Crypt, uh, the Oils Well That Ends Well episode, and it's 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 terrific. It really is a great episode. It, if you haven't seen it, you should try to catch it. What kind of crap is this? If the guy wants to go to the bathroom, let him go, bitch. There we go. That's the word I hate, bitch! There's a very funny dialogue. Priscilla Presley is really funny in the episode. It's just really well shot. It's a, it's, it's a hoot. Paul is is a like, really talented guy. He's a very talented uh, hairdresser. And as he describes to him, to him that was like architecture. And, and he, he also thought about being an architect. They can stop screwing me so they can fuck me. Well, I say screw that. Screw them. Screw the company. Uh, excuse me, please, ma'am, but just exactly what kind of business are you in? Paul's got an interesting story, a really, really interesting story, and he's a really talented director. Someone should hire this guy. Let's call Paul's story from hair to eternity. Many years ago. How did you get so far behind in the shots at lunchtime today? Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I'm mistaken. <laughs> I'm mistaken. That was 30 years ago. <laughs> hey, I came in on time. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you did. With the king's wife. <laughs> Indeed. All I really knew about you really up until this conversation was your episode of Tales from the Crypt. Right. And a little bit. I, I, you know, our, our paths had not crossed all that much. Right. Uh, and I, I got to say, I, I always do the, the deep dive into whoever we're, we're talking to. You're a terrific, you're a terrific director. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you're, you're really, you're, I, I watching you really just, uh, well, first of all, your, your, your website's lovely. 
thank you. And uh, and and I hardly recommend it if, if you're looking for a terrific director who is underutilized, <laughs> under seriously underutilized. Paul Abiscol is really he's a great shooter. I, I I'm 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 your newest fan, man. Oh boy, I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, so, at the end of the day, what we all have in common well what the three of us have in common is an episode of tales from the crypt the yeah. oils well that ends well episode we'll get to that mm-hmm. <laughs> we will get to that uh of course you and gil you you also did an episode of the strip that fabulous I know you were producer on that gil i, I forgot uh, <laughs> <laughs> gil have you forgotten <laughs> I've been trying to, no. Yeah. Uh, and it was but, an interesting show. We shot it in Vegas. We lived yeah. in Vegas for six months. Uh, made a deal with uh, Caesar's Palace, and we all lived in Caesar's Palace. And it was it was pretty pretty wild experience living there. Um, Definitely. And, and especially shooting there. I mean, the, only, the, the thing I remember best about that, just really quickly, is one day we're shooting, it's 124 degrees. And I'm... Not feeling so good. <laughs> and all of a sudden, one of my guys comes to me and says, uh, you better get into your trailer. We put the air conditioning on. You may be having uh, s- some heat stroke. I'm like, what are you talking about? I got to go to the set. And they got me into the trailer for like two hours and left me there and said, you can't come out. Yeah, I, I remember uh, staying in, in Caesars. They had just opened the tower. Right. The, new, the high tower. And they put me. You put me in a beautiful suite with a gym pass and uh but every morning i would walk out of my thing down the thing and through the casino and could never find where the driver was picking me up it didn't matter how many times i did it i would get lost every day which i think is the design of the hotel or you know, they want you to just stay at the machine you know oh see gosh yes sure 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 morning on. you know at the at the at the slot machines you know it was well, I certainly am glad you didn't think it was the design of the production. <laughs> yeah, I think they want everyone in a casino to be like uh, Jack Nicholson's character at exactly. the end of of The Shining, lost exactly. in the uh, in the maze. <laughs> anyway, uh, so but again, we'll 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 come to all to this part yeah. of your life. Let's go um, back to the very beginning. Let's let's back, start. Back, back. Well, let's 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 do the Maria thing. Let's start at the very beginning. Uh, I. I uh... Okay. I mean, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll trunk it. This will be the, the teaser, so it won't be long. <laughs> but I, I grew up in Culver City um, and uh, had an interest in uh, racing cars and motorcycles and things, which I toyed around with a lot when I was young. And I had a, uh, a, a, a great mentor in my life, a guy by the name of Dale Tolan, who um, was on the cover of a road and track and designed engines and things. And he had this, he just lived around the corner for me and he had this garage with every conceivable tool, mills, lathes, everything. And he would build his own, what they called D sports racers. And his, he had two daughters and he, he longed for a son, <laughs> but one of his daughters ended up racing his car. I had the opportunity to do it, but could never, all I had to do was get money for the tires. And I could never raise enough money to do it. But <laughs> this man taught me how to work with my hands and about engines and drawing to scale and all of these things that became incredibly um, important in the in, later on in my life as far as, you know, being able to see how things work and 
and uh, knowing, you know, what what sort of, uh, you know, physicality certain things are going to take, you know, what kind of mechanics and that sort of thing. So um, that was a that was a huge part of my life. And um, so uh, out of that, uh, you know, I went to high school and I was a, a very big surfer. Like I, I even thought about doing it professionally. Um, what were your favorite surf spots here in SoCal? I, you know, I would surf all of them. So there would, it depended on the swell. It would be El Porto, um, sometimes uh, Manhattan Beach, Topanga, Leo Carrillo, County Line, uh, a place called Zeros, Point Doom, Malibu. You know, it depended. It got a bit scientific. You know, you'd say, well, it's a south swell, but it's coming from the neat, and, you know, and the wind is blowing this way. All right, we got to go to zeros, you know, and my so, uh, my son yeah. surfs. So I, I this is this is all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know all those names. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful sanctuary, you know, like I sucked at football and basketball and all that. But surfing was like my thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was I was as into it as, you know, I actually got mentioned in the senior class presidential address to the to the uh to the school you know <laughs> which was very flattering to all the surf guys you know <laughs> but um from uh, out of high school I went I, w- I was considering be- becoming an architect because I had a, a lot of interest in in buildings and design <laughs> and things like that and uh my sister had gone to beauty school and um worked in a salon and was slowly getting into the studio. She was working on like The Price is Right and some of the game shows at CBS and whatnot. So I decided to follow her and and go to beauty school. And um, which was, which was really fun. You know, beauty school is like a party. You know, you got all these, everyone's working on all these old women. Yeah. That, that that is kind of a it is kind of a shift away from architecture, although you know, well, and and car engines. I mean, but was it? Well, it, it's interesting because hairdressing is very architectural. I mean, when yeah. you're like you're you're moving volumes of of hair and you're designing based around people's faces and t- hair textures and things. There's tools, hair you know, hairdressing scissors and curling irons and things. So in a way, it was. It was forming, it was like forming, it was a way, architectural uh, exercise kind of, you know, like, you know, when you, when you think about it, it's, you know, especially if you're doing like stylized women's hairdressing, like for uh, uh, runway shows and things like that, you're moving hair around, you're doing things based on... Absolute architecture, no argument. I, yeah. I and really, if you think about the hairstyles coming out of the sixties and yeah. into oh, the yeah. early seventies, yeah, the word architecture absolutely comes to mind. Yeah, it, it it very much is, you know. So I went, I went, was in school, and I made friends with other students there. One of which, one of whose uncle knew Vidal Sassoon, like was. Very, very dear friends with Vidal Sassoon. You know who he is, right? He's a of he's one of the most famous hairstylists in the yeah. world. And um, so this guy's uncle said, "Oh, my grandson is in uh, in beauty school," and and Vidal was like, "Oh my God, that's wonderful! Let invite him to the salon. Let him take the the classes that we're teaching our assistants wow. that are you know going to become on the floor." And you know, he got this amazing offer, but the guy, my friend, didn't have a car. And I did. So 
I would drive him to Rodeo Drive and we would park my big, actually I, I had a Porsche at the time. <laughs> I had saved up to buy one, but um, we would attend these uh, very, very advanced hair uh, cutting classes uh, that they were giving their assistants. The master stylists would hold these uh, classes and they were like amazing. So we would go twice a week on permission from Vidal. So like we would walk what, in there. Now I, I, I want to I slide back a second. What makes, what made that class amazing? Oh my God. Like at the time, all I cared about was hairdressing. I wanted to be the best hairstylist in the world. So you would see these guys that were legendary within the business, like the artistic directors from Vidal Sassoon who would travel the world teaching and doing hair shows and things and the, the, the techniques, the way they would hold their body. And you talk about architecture. I mean, these guys were doing crazy hairstyles and 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 their techniques and things. It was like I, I was drinking it up, you know. So we would walk in there, you know, and get dirty looks at first from all of the stylists and the assistants like who the fuck are these guys you know these two schmoes that were going in there and um so that went on for about you know a year and a half and uh by the time i i graduated from beauty school like i you know my you know my skill level was you know kind of off the chart compared to the normal guy graduating you know mm -hmm. so um I started I started cutting hair out of my apartment and occasionally I would do a photo session with like an actress or something, you know, it was kind of working in the salon, working uh, out of my apartment. And um, my sister had gotten further into the union and whatnot, and she was helping me uh, gather my days to to qualify to be get into the local seven six, which was the union hairdressing and makeup artist union for the for the movie business. But the days were very, very difficult to um, to gather because you had to wait till everybody in the union, in the makeup and hair, in the makeup union, all excuse me, all the hairstylists were working before they would go to the alternate list. Right, and, right, right. Sure. Somebody like me. <clears throat> so I, I would get a few days now and then, but you needed 120 days, which seemed like, I mean, that would take 15 years. I thought it would take. But um, so funny thing happened. I went and did a a, a photo sh shoot with a, a guy named I think his name was Douglas Kirkland. He's a famous still photographer, and there was this actress model named Robin Douglas, and it was her and her husband on the cover of Money Magazine, and she had long hair. She was quite beautiful, and I did like this sort of partial braid, and you know I made her look as good as I could, and she loved it, and it was a one day gig. And, um, and I did it, got paid and forgot about it. Well, she went on to get cast in um, Battlestar Galactica, which was a series they were doing out of Universal. And she decided she wanted to wear the same hairstyle I had given her on the cover of the magazine in, in the series, because there was a lot of action and she had a lot of hair that would fall on her face. But this was a great way of keeping it out of her face. So I don't know anything about this. I don't know if she's gotten cast. I mean, it was just a one-day gig, and I'm, I didn't stop thinking about her. And uh, apparently, the hairstylist on the set that was hired to do her hair on the series, who was a union person, couldn't do the style like I had done. And, and this girl, Robin, was 
she was a bit aggressive, let's say. She raised hell on the set. Like every day, it was a, it was a nightmare. So my phone rings out of the blue, and it's this guy, Nick Marcelino. Nick Marcelino, who ran the makeup department at Universal. There used to be a building, and, and it, it was like a standalone building that housed the makeup, makeup and hair department on the lot. Sure. And he introduces himself. I don't know who he is. He says, listen, this is Nick Marcelino, um, the head of makeup at Universal Studios. I'd like you to get in your car and drive down here and see me. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this about, right? So I get there, and he, uh, he's got this big desk in this stylized office, and he's got these readers on, and he's looking at me over his, at the top of his readers. He says, I have a problem that you can help me solve. And I'm like, okay, still don't know what's going on. He goes, you know, Robin Douglas. And I was like, yeah. she, he says, she's an actress. You worked with her. You did her hair. And I went, yeah, of course. Sure. Yeah, I know her. And she says, well, she's raising hell for everybody around here. So I need you to get in your car, drive to Valencia. Here's the map. And you're going to replace her hairstylist on the series. And I'm like, it, and this was like, this was like a golden ticket, right? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So I, I said to my go, Nick, I got to tell you, I'm not in the union. I don't have enough days to get you. Don't worry about that. I'll, I'll, I'll fix that. So I get in my car. I drive to Valencia to the set. And I had been on a few sets uh, before visiting my sister and whatnot. But I was as green as could be. And uh, as I'm walking up, you know, like, you know, I'm behind the cameras and whatnot. And I see her there in front of the cameras going, brush mirror you know and i see the hairstylist like handing her this thing and she's like brushing her hair and she's all pissed off and i'm like oh god you know so i come walking up i wait till they cut whatever and i said hey uh, i got sent down to, to help you and she was like hugging me and all that you know the first ad comes over and's like dude you don't know I'm, thank you for you know so so i got the rest of my days on that series Oh my God! Which was a miracle. That's great. You know? That's a great and, story. Uh, that is hilarious. <laughs> wow! Just j- jump, jump to the head of the line, and then yeah, some, man. Yeah, no, it was like a. It was and, like and then free popcorn. Free. And have some popcorn, and do you want a you want a <laughs> refillable soda? Yeah, just just, just yeah. So, a hose right 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 to yeah. your seat, man. <laughs> exactly. So I uh, I finished the series. I'm like in hog heaven, and. Uh, I, I go back to Universal because that's sort of where you based out of because sometimes they'd shoot on the lot. Sometimes they'd shoot out on location. And so with the, the series gets, they do 12 episodes, 13 episodes. I don't remember what it was, but so I went back and, and Nick Marcelino said, I got another job for you. He goes, you're going to go work with the Smothers Brothers up in San Francisco. And I'm like, yeah, man. So I, they flew me up to San Francisco and I meet uh, Dick and Tommy Smothers who who are a lot more fun on stage than they are behind the scenes. <laughs> um, Why is that not shocking? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so Tommy uh, was interested in race cars. You know, he, he was racing sports cars or something on the side. And at one point we were having a discussion about a certain kind of Porsche. And I like corrected him. I said, well, no, that's a, that'd be a 916 because it's got a different such and such, whatever. <laughs> I don't remember the exact thing. And he kind of looked at me like, you dare to correct me, you know, and, uh, and I'm just a young spud. 
So the next thing you know, I'm on a plane back from San Francisco to the makeup department. I got fired and I was, I was completely devastated. I thought there goes my career. Uh. And, uh, and Nick Marcelino said, don't worry about it. Go down the hall to the last makeup room and meet Scott Edo. And Scott Edo was a makeup artist. And the two of us, we got assigned this movie, uh, TV movie um, with Mary Crosby uh, that was also shooting in San Francisco. So I met Scott. We we hit it off like a house on fire. And um, we uh, we drove up to San Francisco and did this movie. Um, and, uh, and from then on, he and I became a team. He would do makeup and I would do hair. And we went on to do, you know, a few other movies. And then we kind of got separated. Um, and I went off to do uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. No, I went off to do Pretty in Pink, which is a John Hughes movie. Um, John Hughes and, and I became friendly on the movie. He didn't direct it, but he was around. And then John asked me to do Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm-hmm. It's amazing in, in uh, Chicago, you know. The whole uh, you so you you had a a Molly Ringwald experience. Uh, oh I, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I hired I I hired Molly on an episode of The Outer Limits. Uh, oh, did you? Yeah, I enjoyed yeah. working with her. Yeah, she was nice. I mean, it um, the 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 show the the Pretty in Pink was a you maybe you've seen it, it you know it had a lot of crazy hairstyles. Oh yeah, really yeah 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 yeah. Gave me a chance to kind of flex my my stuff, you know, and uh, and it ended up working really good. It's kind of an iconic movie in the hairdressing world. Um, but uh, yeah, Molly was nice, you know. I met her father. Why? Why is that? Well. Because the uh, the Annie Potts character has, she's this eccentric, um, you know, kind of free spirit and she dresses up differently, you know. She's kind of like these women you might see working at in Melrose or something. She was inspired off of one of these um, sort of 60s hippie slash punk rocker, you know, kind of mashup of those. So uh, she was very uh, willing to, to kind of really go for it on the on the hairdressing um so there were there were wigs that she was one day she's got a beehive the next time she has a like what they call the china chop there and then i had punk rock on her she, she was all over the place so and uh so that played really well and it became kind of a character really a character embellishment of her can for can her can, part. can i interject with with, with with one question paul yes <laughs> all right. All right. So now you're you're well before you got into the movie business, because you're no longer working in, 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 in the salon side. You're you were just working exclusively on, on sets, right? At this point? Yes. Yes. But but all right, before you made the transition over and, and you were in the salon world, right? Did the movie shampoo ever pop into your head? I mean, I saw it and uh y- you know, there's there would be there would be passages that may relate to that and you know time to time keep it at that you know (laughs) i was more to be honest with you i was totally just laser focused on on a career you know what i mean like i wanted to learn all the latest techniques and i had subscriptions to vogue magazine all of the women's magazines would come Mm -hmm. to my house and i would make you know uh boards of hairdress you know stuff so i could pull stuff out that was like you were not you were not a george 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were definitely not not a George Warren yeah. Beatty's character in in Shampoo, but you know it it is it's really the only thing that I guess I guess I know about that world. And hey, man, there's a whole feature. I guess my question was, did did that world in any way, aside from the fact that you had no interest in being a George, was that how the world? was oh, in any yeah way? i mean you know you you would you would do like i would do hair shows where you'd go to like a, a nightclub and you you know there would be models there and you'd get a model and you'd look at her clothes and say okay i'm gonna do this you know so you work on her and you know these were attractive women you know you're around them you you know but again you've got a job to do and you know, you've got to be you've got to be professional but yeah, I mean, there's some George floating out there. <laughs> you know, okay. It, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, All right. I, I I feel better knowing that. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As you were, carry on. All right. Especially I, being I a heterosexual hairstylist, you know. So after Pretty in Pink, I went and did Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and John Hughes and Joel Silver were good friends, and and John Hughes told Joel Silver about me, and Joel was getting ready to do Lethal Weapon. My partner, who who didn't do Ferris Bueller or Pretty in Pink with me, he was off doing something else. Uh, he got Predator, I think, with Joel, and he was getting ready to do Lethal Weapon. and And uh, and John Hughes had told him about me, so I went in. I met with Joel, and he goes, "You got to meet with Donner." And I'm like, "Sure, you know, whatever." And my friend Scott had said, "Listen, Donner doesn't want us to have a makeup trailer. He wants us to work out of the honey wagon." And I'm like, what? And you let that happen? Come on, dude, that's never going to, you know, I get all in my, my my friend Scott Edo's face. And he's like, you know, I, you know, I said, you, if I was there, this never would have happened. So I go to meet Donner and, and he walks in. He I'd never met him before. I didn't know who he was. And he, and he, uh, we, I walk into his office and the first thing he says, he goes, if, if, I let you do this movie. I want you to know right now, you're not going to have a makeup trailer. This is not a big movie. We're going to do, we're not going to be a bunch of trucks and da, da, da. And I'm like, hey, we don't need a makeup trailer. It's fine. No problem. <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can only imagine that voice, you know, and he's like, oh man. Oh, no, we don't have to. <laughs> yeah. So, so we get the job and, and working out of the makeup trailer or the honey wagon rather is ridiculous. So we, we brought in a bunch of extra boxes and crates and stuff and made it so like if somebody were to come in, open the door, they could look through like a couple of cases and see in. And uh, eventually we got a makeup trailer and um, and we we went to town on, on Lethal Weapon, which was the most amazing experience, you know, like yeah. Ellen and I hit it off like, you know, and I mean, we just had so much fun. And, and Donner... God bless him. I mean, he became this huge mentor in my life. Like hmm. he, you know, his house, what he was interested in, like the way he worked on the set, you know, I mean, I'm just watching him, you know, from afar. Um, and occasionally, you know, I, I would whisper an idea in his ear, you know, like, hey, don't you think such and such, whatever, you know? And he'd say, good, kid, good idea, kid, good. And, and he'd go and <laughs> sort of do it, you know? And I'm, I didn't know you're not supposed to do that, you know, <laughs> but he made it so comfortable on the set that, uh, you know, if if you were stupid enough like me to go up and, and say something, 
you might not get your lights punched out, you know. Mm. And uh, why was he so adamant about not having a makeup trailer? What was that all about? It was just money. He, when when the when the movie first came out, he wanted to do it kind of like gorilla style, like he wanted just a very low thumbprint, <laughs> you know, a very low, you know, just a few trucks, and we're going to go out and kind of steal this movie. That was how, what was being talked about, and the whole time Joel Joel would be in the background going no. This, that's not at the one way. point I, I was like a stunt man that Mel carries on his back and throws into a doorway when he goes to rescue Danny, you know. So we're 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 like Donner and Joel built this like family, you know, and that crew went on to do several movies together. Mm. And and there's this this shorthand developed between all of us. It was like, you know, it was Joel, you know, we you know, another movie's coming up, Joel's doing this and that. And and I don't know. I think we did like eight or ten movies, you know, um, together. And um, come Lethal Weapon two, this is this is where we're getting into the directing thing for a second. <laughs> Lethal Weapon two comes along, and HBO gives Mel a camera, a video camera. When they first came out, the thing was about the size of a VW. Right. It took like a, a full size VHS tape. You know, it was about the, you know, it was huge. And they said, you know, here, Mel, this is this is a camera to shoot anything behind the scenes at all, and maybe we'll use it in the electronic press kit. Right. And this was uh, Mel Gibson's unauthorized video diary. Yeah. Yeah. So so the camera sat around and and I came up with an idea one day. I said, let's let's do a skit about how you get ready to how you prepare to become an actor, you know, in the movie and all that. Mm. So uh, was the the unit publicist, Scott, myself, and Mel. And we would sit around and come up with all these skit ideas to do. And they kept getting more and more elaborate. And um, so we we did one. It's a one where Mel climbs up the stairs inside of a soundstage and he's talking as he's going up. And he says, you know, this is where I come, you know, I... This is where I get into character. I get some introspective up here, get away from everything and find my my character. And uh, we had this ongoing theme where the first date or the second AD would call him to come to the set. And and we we made Mel into like a clutch. So he ends up falling down the stairs. You know, we used this dummy. It was very crude and silly. And um, and then he'd get up and say, you know, oh, God, I hope nobody's I hope nobody's saw that. Oh, gee, I, I hope nobody saw that and he would walk away. So that became this like through line. And we, we edited that first one together and showed it to the crew and Donner just lost it. He loved it. And he loved that Mel was having so much fun doing all these skits and everything. So we're shooting on Warner Lot and like Dan Aykroyd's on one stage, Chevy Chase is over here. Uh, Paul Pee Wee Herman's over there. Michael Keaton's on stage sixteen, so we'd say, "Hey, maybe we can get one of these guys to to be, you know, be in the video. We'll write a little skit around it." So I'd go over to Dan Aykroyd, and he didn't know me, and I'd say, "Hey, I'm doing this thing with Mel. It's a it's a quick gig. Can you come over to stage 13 We'll, and we'd set this up real quick, hmm. and, and it would be Dan Aykroyd, and it, 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 he would Dan Aykroyd played a guy that we we talked about in the video. Uh, uh, industrial espionage within the film industry and how one film competing for a time slot would try to sabotage another film to get the upper hand for distribution and whatnot. Anyway, so so uh, Aykroyd became this kind of like 
assassin double agent that was kind of over to 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 screw up Mel, you know, so he could his film would be you know released first and stuff. And so so Dan, you know, Dan Aykroyd came and did this brilliant little skit. Took about five minutes to do. And then we got Michael Keaton and Pee Wee Herman and everything. And we kept cutting these things together and, and Donner just loving it. And then we showed it to HBO and they're like, they, we blew their minds. And um, so they did a half hour special on HBO, which got huge ratings and was the talk of the town. And then come Lethal Weapon 3, NBC wanted, offered us a half hour slot on the network to do another behind the scenes like we did. Now, mind you, this is while I'm hairdressing, you know, so I'm still a hairdresser on the set, but I've got the camera most of the time on my shoulder. And Donner was so awesome. He would like finish shooting a scene and turn to us and say, you guys need anything here? You know, and sometimes we would, and and he would just sit there and let us, let us do these stupid <laughs> videos while the crew sat around and watched us. It was amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the second video, Mel decided he didn't want to do a network thing. So HBO picked up uh, the second video we did, Mel Gibson's unauthorized video, Lethal 3 or something, I think it was called. And uh, and this one was bigger. I mean, we we crashed a jet. We, I mean, there was all kinds of stuff we did. And uh, we kind of tied it into what was available in the movie. Like at one point... The other one's nice house, huh? And then I'm gonna roll this this. right here. So we need a clear path, no obstructions, no. Oh I bet I could hit that house from here. Just so they watch it. As a matter of fact, Terry, yeah. anybody that doesn't have to be in this. That second video got nominated for a Cable Ace award, which was like unheard of and that's what set me up to start campaigning to get a tales from the crypt because because don and uh, donner and joel were very happy with what we did and it really helped exploit the movie and actually you had the right fans a big pardon you had the right fans yeah exactly and it <clears throat> believe it or not it changed the way the studios exploit movies to this day it was like this was the first thing because it was behind the scenes, it was Mel mm -hmm. talking to the camera, all of this shit happening. Very crude, very silly, but it it gave you this window into the making of the movie, although we, you know, kind of styled it up a little bit, but it, it became the talk of the town. Nobody had ever done this before. It was us and Donner giving us the liberty to do it, you know, like... We had the president of Warner Brothers, Mark Canton, was in a video okay, with okay, Chevy okay. Chase. Now, now, what are you doing? No, what are you doing? This, this is Warner Brothers, man. This is Warner Brothers. I know. Wait, wait, wait. What are you doing here? So, again, while I'm hairdressing, all of this is going on. You know, we put on tuxedos and went to the Cable Ace Awards, but we didn't. You had a really interesting side hustle here. Yeah, exactly. And again, that sort of came out of nowhere only because HBO left this camera on the set and we started to figure out what to do with it. Something out of nothing, literally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, and it was so much fun. But so so here comes Tales from the Crypt, which you guys obviously know all about. But I I start angling, you know, was, I would ask Donner, he'd say, you know, I'd say, Dick, you think maybe I could 
do one of these? You know, I'd love to get into the DGA. And he said, I right, go ask Joel. And Joel would say, well, go ask Donner, you know, and with this whole like, <laughs> ask your mom, ask your dad thing. Right. And, um, <laughs> and finally a slot opened up and, and uh, we had a stunt coordinator uh, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, uh, I don't know if I should mention his name. I'll get, maybe I'll get a hit put out on me, but the stunt coordinator that worked with Joel and uh, his name's Charlie Paterno. Yeah, sure. sure. In a stunt family. He finds out that I'm getting a slot to direct tales. And he's like, no, you're not. I'm getting that slot. You're not getting it. You're just the hairdresser. <laughs> and I'm the stunt, you know, I'm this big stunt man and everything. And I'm like, dude, you're rich. I'm just, I'm this little guy. I'm getting the break of my life. And, and you, you know, you're cock blocking me here. Are you kidding? You know, he said, ah, fuck it. And he took the slot. And I was devastated. I was like, you know, I, I didn't, I thought there, there it went. This guy who drove a Ferrari and had a house in Hidden Hills and all this comes in and, and, and blocks me, you know, literally took it out from under me. And, uh, and they couldn't do anything because they needed him for second unit and blah, 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 you know, so, so, um, you know, I'm crushed. And, uh, then I, I go on from from Lethal Three to go do Demolition Man, and with Sylvester Stallone, I was his hairstylist. Uh, it's another Joel Silver production, and um, and a slot opens up while I'm on uh, Demolition Man for 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 Tales, and Joel says the only way you can do this is if Sly signs off on it. You know, you're not going to just leave him high and dry. You're his hairstylist. You're getting paid a fortune to do his hair, and uh, so I'm like, oh shit. You know, so I go to Sly and I'm, my throat's dry. I'm like, oh. <laughs> listen, I, 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 you know, and I said, I, I, I got a slot to get my DGA card to go direct to Tales from the Crypt. And, 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 and I said, you know, is it okay if I go, you know, are you okay with that? And he's like, no, you got to stay here and brush my hair, you know, and I, and I, and he was kidding. He goes, of course I'm okay. You know, he goes, go do it, you know. And so I left Demolition Man and left Sly with another hairstylist for, I don't know, 10 days or however long it was, 10 day shoot or some five prep, five shoot, and and went off and did your guy's show, you know? And, uh, you know, by the time I, I got that opportunity, you know, I had worked with, you know, Taylor Hackford, Catherine Bigelow, uh, Dick Donner, um, you know, Ridley Scott on commercials, um, John McTiernan, you know, I'd done a lot, had a lot of opportunities to sit there and pay attention. So it, it felt pretty good, you know, to, to, to go directly, you know. So. And you had a mind for architecture to begin yeah. with. And yeah. so, as you said, and tinkering with engines and figuring out how things work. So, you know, at the end of the day, directing, I'm sorry, guys, I know you're, you're both members of the DGA and, and I'm not, but, you know, in it at its basic level it's not that hard really it's you yeah. know in, in 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 tv especially you know really the director is a traffic cop you're 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 the you're the flavor of the week but really the the house I mean, flavor is much bigger than you are I, yeah, I, but, I, to, but to defend it a little bit i mean tell us in yeah. the grip wasn't being a traffic cop because it was oh, so yeah, 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 yeah. And everything yeah. was different. Every week was a different world. We were yeah. an anthology, so so there was no house style to speak of. Exactly. We, we we were we were quite quite 
well, we were the exception to every rule there was. You you absolutely were. I mean, <laughs> the thing the thing about it is, I I I look at I don't I don't think directing is an easy job. I mean, it's easy if you know how. But I mean, you can do over as a master and you know a little bit of coverage, whatever. But I think to create that intersection of cinematic mechanics, if you will, and and the drama without drawing attention to yourself, but to create these sort of moments is difficult. Like I had a friend of mine, you know, tell me, he goes, man, he goes, you worry too much. Just leave it up to the DP. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not mm -hmm. how it works. You know, I, oh, the DP's yeah, not yeah. up all night figuring out the blocking and, you know, where, when you're going to push in and, and the, 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 ins, I go, the DP is not that guy, you know, he, that's your job as the director, you know, you know, Alan, suff Alan suffered terribly with me whenever I directed, because whenever I figured out a shot, I always thought that there was a better shot. So sure. I would beat the shit out of myself trying to figure out, okay, that's not a good shot that I just came up with. There's a better shot. What is it? What is it? And yeah. I would just beat my head against the wall. You know, yeah. it was just, it was a real painful experience for me. Yeah. I, so, I, so, I, and it's I, also, I, you're looking, you're looking to create that emotionality of yes. those characters and how to build that the best way possible using yeah. whatever you have, meaning, meaning the shots, meaning the effects, meaning the lighting, yeah. you know, and any, anything else you can think of. And so it isn't, it isn't an easy task. Mm -hmm. It it's only looks like an easy task when it's done and you go, oh, wow, that works. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, there, it's, it's oh, there, there's craft for sure. And and, and there oh, yeah. is a huge difference between actual craftspeople and you know, traffic cops. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are shows, you know, my wife and I are watching this show now called uh, Vir Virgin River. It's like this soap set up in the in the looks like it's up in Canada or something, lots of trees and cabins and whatnot. And that show is very like, you know, over medium close, you know, there's, there's no, there's no cinematic mechanics at work, you know, mm. really get that immersive experience within, within the narrative provided it's, it's warranted. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into that. A lot mm. of work that goes into it, knowing, knowing, you know, how wide to be, when to use a close-up, any number of things. And and I always say, like, uh, when I see sometimes new directors, I, you know, I'll say that's a film school shot, which is something that takes you out of the narrative. It may be really fun to do and to put on your reel for six seconds, but to resist that and, and come up with a dignified, stylized, appropriate shot and be it during a car chase or, you know, or get the sense of, you know, to try and make the person's hair stand up on the back of their necks or convey fear or whatever it may be. There's definitely technique to that. that I, I kind of pride myself on these days being able to deliver that and not make that the only shot I got the whole day. <laughs> well, let's 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 step back into oil's well that ends well. You brought a really yeah. cinematic eye to to your first time Sitting in a, in a director's chair, you there are some lovely, lovely shots. I just rewatched it before we oh. we all sat down here. Well, there's a lovely shot where she she uh, Priscilla Presley puts a shot glass down on the bar. Wonderful, nice little touches like that. I I have a great story about that shot that I'll share with you. Go for You'll it. Love this. I, <laughs> I hope you love it. 
I'm working on a show called Just Cause with Sean Connery. Um, it shoots in uh, Miami. Kate Capshaw's in it. Larry, Larry uh, Fishburn, Fish, Fishburn, you know, the famous yeah. artist. Mm-hmm. Um, a few other names in it, but Kate Capshaw, who's married to Steven Spielberg. Um, so one day I get a call from Kate and she says, look, I need my roots touched up. Can you come to my hotel room and, and do it for me? And I'm, I'm, of course, you know, so I get up early. I go to the Eden Rock Hotel where she's staying and she's in a robe and I'm putting on this goop on her hair in the in the living room of her hotel suite. And Steven Spielberg walks into the room. Kate had overheard that I got my DGA card and I did a Tales from the Crypt. So Spielberg walks into the room. It's probably 7.30 in the morning. You know, there he is, the guy, you know, Steven Spielberg. And, she, and Kate introduced me. Oh, this is Paul. And he just got into the DGA and 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 I'm putting the goop on her hair with gloves on. I've got this big mess going. And Spielberg's like, really? You know, how, how did you do that? You yeah. know, oh, I know Joel and Dick and I, you know, they, you know, I, they let me direct to Tales from the Crypt. And he says, wow, he goes, I'd like to see that sometime. I just happen to have a VHS with me. So I, uh, out of my kid, I said, well, here it is. You know, if you get a second, have a look, you know. So a day or two goes by and we're shooting in the Eden Rock and, uh, you know, the whole crew's there. And when Spielberg comes onto the set, I mean, it's, you know, you hear the Jaws music, you hear, you know, I mean, it's like, there's, you know, there's an essence to this guy, it's huge. And uh, so we're sitting there, I don't know, there's maybe 15 people around. I'm kind of in between setups. And Spielberg comes over, he puts his hand on, around my shoulder. And he goes, because I really enjoyed that. He hands me the tape because I really enjoyed that. He goes, I love that shot with the shot glass and the lipstick. And, and, and everyone's just like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> and I'm just standing there like my ears are beaming, you know, and uh and, you know, that was about it. But it was just that one moment where he actually acknowledged the same shot you brought up. So <laughs> it's a lovely shot. She's really, really good in the episode. Yeah, I, I, I had a good, a good time with her. She, she's she, really her her line deliveries are just they're, they're, they're so fun and funny. And she she was so willing just to go balls yeah. to the wall. Yeah. And and Nim, that was Nimifro was Mm-hmm. Oh, he he was like looking for his, his inner Quentin Tarantino and, yep. and, and yep. seemed to find it. And he was yep. so proud of, of, of having Priscilla Presley speak the line. I don't munch carpet and I don't strap it on. <laughs> she says, I'm no lesbian. Yeah. I don't munch carpet and I don't strap it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she was a great sport, you know. So um, so I I get into the DGA. I have a tape like a legitimate episode of Tales from the Crypt, which as we a all know- A very legitimate episode. Yeah. Make no mistake yeah. about it. Yeah. And uh, so then I start trying to get another assignment, you know, and I'm still sort of hairdressing, you know, telling people I'm a director now. And people are like, yeah, just make sure this isn't too long, you know. And, and um, so I had been watching this show called Silk Stockings. Still mm. stalkings in, in uh, it was set in Palm Beach, although they shot it in San Diego. I don't know. Do you know the show? It's uh, sure. yeah, sure. two de- a, a sexy female, a sexy male detective, and Palm Beach crimes. You know, high society stuff, whatever. 
So I start writing to Stu Siegel, who's the producer of this thing. I maybe wrote him 30 little buck cards of like, hey, love the episode last night. That was a great thing. Da, da, da. You know, I kept writing and writing and writing and writing to him. And I'd say, I sure love if anything ever comes up, I'd sure like to come down and direct an episode. Here's my Tales from the Crypt, you know. And, and um, so, I don't know, six or eight months went by and I get a call, you know, from him. And he says, look, an episode's come up and uh, if you want, you can come on, come down and do it, you know. And while I'd been watching the show, I noticed it was kind of, you know, very over, over master, you know, very straightforward, kind of soapy looking. And I'm thinking, man, when I get down there, I am going to, you know, we're going to use some <laughs> stuff here. We're going to make this thing look more expensive and better, you know. So I've got all these ideas. I happened to get a Stephen Cannell episode, which was the better quality one. It just happened to come my way. So, so I pack up my Porsche with all my goodies and I drive to San Diego. I get to the production office, which is this building like there's no signage or anything it's just a building on a lot somewhere in san diego and i walk in there's a receptionist at this shitty little desk no posters nothing around anywhere and i said hi am i in the right place you know silk stocks she said yeah i said i'm paul i'm supposed to meet with Stu, Stu siegel and she says he's down at the end of the hall so i'm like okay and i'm a little nervous i'll admit you know i just had one episode i mean i thought i knew what i was doing i kind of did i kind of you know and I walk down to the end of this hall and at the, like the hall goes straight down and his, his office is right here. And at the threshold from the hallway into his office, there's a tape outline of like a body laying on the ground, like, like you'd see at a crime scene or something instead of yeah. chalk, it's taped off. And I peek my head into his office and he's sitting at this desk and there's two Rottweilers, like big ones on each side of his desk live dogs and as i peek in the dogs are like you know they just sat kind of snapped his fingers and the dogs were just there and so that's the first thing that happens and then i i said hey Stu, paul abiscal how do you do it i said what's that and i point to the outline he goes it's a director sit down and i'm like okay so i'm sitting there and mind you i've got i've read the script i've broken it down i've got all these ideas and he and he he says sit down and I sit there and he goes, let me tell you how we do the show. He goes, this is a close-up. No, he goes, this is a close-up. I want to see tits and headroom. Uh, there's no panning. We don't dutch. We don't whip pan. We don't push in. We don't do it. And I'm just slowly, all of these ideas are getting just ripped out from under me, you know? And I'm like, sure, no problem, you know? And, you know, I went on to do You're, the you're here to be a traffic cop. Exactly. You're, you're that's exactly right. Welcome to traffic school. You know? yeah. So the, the episode came out fine, although there was one time where this car was speeding out of this gated community and I wanted to like follow it because it breaks through the turnstile, you know, at, at the guard gate, you know. And I said, we'll just we'll just whip through here with the car. You know, and the whole crew said, we can't whip pan. I said, we're not whip panning. We're following the car. We're, you know, Anyway, I made him do it. You know, I never heard about it, but it was like, that was my big, like, embellishment <laughs> for the show. Um, but uh, Did you ever you get know, hired was, back? I, I never got hired back. That's um, probably why. Yeah, probably. Um, but, you know, God bless him. He gave me an episode. Now I have yeah. two things to uh, yeah. show, you know. So I, I got a, 
a thing in, in Cabo St. Lucas called Land's End with uh, Fred Dreyer and uh, Tim Thomerson. Tim Thomerson put me up for that. I, I had met him at a dinner party and, you know, he, he's a very, very nice man. And, and he, he was working on that show. He put my name up and uh, I got three episodes of that, which was amazing shooting in Cabo. And, and, uh, and so then now I had like five things to show, you know, and then I started getting some work up in, uh, in Canada on some action shows up there, like Viper mm -hmm. and uh, uh, um, the Sentinel. And, uh, and then I would, I was peppering that with uh, uh, America's Most Wanted, mm. uh, which was another kind of amazing um, thing to, to work on. Um, you know, you would get a case. Uh, the way the show works is it's sort of a last ditch effort to catch a criminal. Like, mm -hmm. so you'd get a case of what happened, whether it was a kidnapping, a murder or whatever. They'd give you the case, which was sort of summarized in script form. And you'd go to whatever city it happened in and you could stage the action any way you wanted. And, you know, and you had two or three cameras and cranes if you needed them and stuff like that. And they were like four, three to four day shoots. And it was incredibly fun. Like, so <laughs> I learned how to tape up people with duct tape and tie them and, and, and film these things. And then you'd go to Washington where their main thing headquarters were and you'd score, you'd edit, score, you know, do, do everything and then submit the episode when you were done. And that really honed my skills because there were all different kinds of scenarios that you were shooting, you know. Um, the Really, this was the beginning of, of the reenactment business. Yes. Yes. And it really, it has taken over. I mean, it's, yeah. it's oh, a definitely. very significant piece of, of the doc documentaries, even, even news divisions yeah. will use this technique to bring yes. a story to life. Yes. And yeah. you, and it's super fun because it's like, nobody's telling you how to do it. You know, you get there and you say, okay, yeah. you know, so you, you, it's, you put on your creative hat and, and you go to town, you have a, and most of the people on the crew really didn't have much experience. So they would be just like fascinated with what we were doing, you know, and then um, it, it, that was, that was some really fun stuff. You know, it was kind of oh, like, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm like sure. A music video, but, um, but uh, you know, you had, you had a beginning, middle and end, and there was also some drama and, and, uh, and you were helping catch criminals. So I think I, I was personally responsible because of my episodes i think i caught four like seriously bad guys because the public had seen the episodes and said hey that motherfucker works at the coffee shop you know and they they go i got a call out of the blue again this time from mel and he said uh hey i need a favor his his company had bought a script that i had been developing with these two writers and we were developing it at icon which was his company at the time he was based at Warner Brothers. And it was called The Whole Megillah. And it was kind of like a movie, kind of like The Sting. It was mm -hmm. really, it was pretty cool. And we were working on it. And he had just finished doing Payback and was doing Lethal Four. And at that time I had I had said, I'm not, I'm not hairdressing anymore. I'd, I'd put the brush down. And so uh, I was developing this at Icon and they just finished Payback. And they had shown it to uh, test audiences and Paramount and Warner Brothers because it was a co-production, and and it didn't test well. There it was it was on it was not working, and um, 
Brian Helgeland directed it. Brian Helgeland directed it. Yeah. It was a friend of mine who I knew from <laughs> Lethal Weapon and from yeah. Assassins. Uh, the, the, you know, because I he, worked on those as a hairdresser. Brian and, did a uh, Tales from the Crypt. So, yeah. He's, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. So, anyway, so I get a call from Mel and says, Look, this movie ain't working. I'm busy on Lethal Four. Would you come in? A Terry Hayes, who wrote Dead Calm and some other great scripts. He's an Australian writer. Um, Terry Hayes has written some new material that we're going to insert into the movie. And and would you come in and direct this? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> of course, you know. So it was, the movie was in trouble. Paramount and Warner were not happy with it. Brian Hugland decided he didn't want to make any changes on the movie and walked off. And and so insert Paul Abascal, you know. So I get in there and storyboard everything. And, and basically what we're doing is we're inserting a whole storyline within the movie. We, like Chris Christopherson wasn't originally in the movie. The whole huh. thing, the ticking clock with the bomb under the bed and Mel getting his toes smashed and all of this stuff didn't exist. So Terry had written this thing to insert into the movie. It was about 30 minutes worth of material. And um, so they handed me the film and the, the, uh, the, new, the new pages and uh, and I went to work, you know, so it was one of those situations where like, I am either going to fuck myself here or this is going to work, you know. So it was about, I think, 13 days we shot and uh, I storyboarded everything. You know, I, I just went in there, you know, didn't make any excuses for anything I was doing. The the stuff where his toe gets gets smashed is is uh, fucking brutal. <laughs> it's it's really and hard to watch. That was it's hard, to, and I think actually on the on the reel, I I backed off of it a little bit. It was even more gruesome because you never see his toe get hit. You only see him react. Oh um, yeah, yeah, but uh, theater of the hard. mind, you know. Yeah. So um, so we you know everyone's like, oh, Paul's gonna fix it. You know, like you know, don't get near me. I'm, I don't have anything to do with this. You know, people are distancing themselves from the movie because it could potentially be a disaster, right? So anyway, so we shoot everything. We, you know, I go to the editing room. I'm working with the editor and we're cutting it. We, um, I think we changed the score. No, we didn't change the score. We, we had Chris Bo Borsman, I think, or Chris. Chris, I know, Chris Borsman. Borsman, yeah. Yeah. He, he did, he did, he did some of the, the stuff, you know, the, the fixes and whatnot. And we showed it to, we had this big, um, screening of it for Sherry Lansing and Lorenzo Di Bonaventura, Jeff Berg, all of these major players come and see what Paul has done to the movie, you know. And I'm I'm sitting there and they, and they show the movie and it, and it worked, you know, really well, thank God. And and the lights come on and everyone stands up and they're clapping and I'm like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was it was an amazing moment and actually got a kiss from Sherry Lansing. Um, so so that was a huge deal for me. So now I have a feature, you know, partial feature on my real, you know, on my resume. Um, and it came, it was interesting because it came down, I had done enough of the movie to warrant a credit on the poster. Like, you know, like I had shot like a minute and a half over what what would have not gotten me credit, you know. And and I decided not to take credit on it because it would 
it sort of would have thrown things off. You know, I, I did it out of respect to Brian and I just thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I still get residuals on the movie, but I just didn't take a credit, which sometimes I regret not doing, but, um, mm -hmm. but at the time it seemed like the right thing. Like it, it would have been greedy to take it because I, I just think it would have, whenever the movie was talked about, then it would have been like, well, who's this other director? Like what happened, you know? So it was kind of, it was known within the business, but uh, you know, the public didn't really know, you know. But so. the people who needed to know knew. knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's, um, that's really, at the end of the day, that's that's what's most important. Yeah. And, yeah, and I mean, again, like, I, you know, I had to, I had to, there was arbitration at the DGA, and they said, like, look, you know, you've done too much of this movie not to be credited, and it's not second unit, so what do you want to do, you know, because you're entitled to a credit on the film, and I just, like I said, I I, I, I think you did something not a single member of the WGA has ever done, <laughs> <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Well, they did tell me I would still get the the residuals, which I mean, we this don't is care. we don't care. This is 1998. I still get checks for the movie. Like, you know, they're not paying for for a Ferrari, but they're you know they still trickle in. You did a. A bunch of episodes of a of a really good series called American Genius. Yes, yes. Um, uh, Tesla v Edison and Space Race, and they're they're both. Mr. Wow. Nikola Tesla. A pleasure. Ten generators. 2,250 volts each, producing 37,000 kilowatts. Here, the current is increased to 22,000 volts for travel. How far? Albany, New York City, Chicago. This will revolutionize the industry as we know it. You do have an absolute knack for, for merging these two you know the the information and the expert, and yeah. the world in which the the expert is actually living. It uh, that was a, an amazing assignment. Um, uh, there was an eight episode miniseries I did four, and uh, a colleague of mine did the other four, and we would shoot. It was a very uh, truncated shooting schedule, so we would shoot like three different episodes on the same day. Like you'd shoot. 1968 in the space race and then you'd shoot uh you know 1856 early uh colt smith and wesson change those extras and now you're in 1940s for the space race episode so the uh and then the other guy would be shooting simultaneously he would be doing the same thing so the the production designer and the wardrobe people on that show were like next level amazing like yeah 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 these sets around you know on the same day you know and I, hey that guy was in the other one i need the give me the other extra you know put him over here and it was this like sleight of hand that ended up working out pretty great i had i had a lot of fun on that and and uh the uh i learned a lot too i because i didn't know the steve jobs uh um um uh, Who's the other guy, the, the richest man in the world, Bill or uh, Bill, Gates. Hey, Bill Gates? Bill Gates. I did the 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 the, the uh, Bill Gates Steve Jobs story, and I didn't I didn't know that story how how Bill Gates saves Apple 
and Apple, you know, because Apple was going bankrupt and they were, and uh, so Gates had to save Apple because he had the monopoly. And by saving Apple, it got the government off his back for having the monopoly on the software. It's a very interesting story, you know, but um, again, te the Tesla story um, was was fascinating to learn about and, and to direct. And we, we got this, I don't know if you saw, but the actor that plays Tesla looks exactly like him and he's yeah. a wonderful actor. Um, so that was really, really fun. I do want to tell you a, a great Die Hard story. Um, so I was a hairstylist on Die Hard, and uh, there's a famous caterer in the business named Tony Karam. You've probably heard of him. He's like the kind of the pinnacle of catering. And he would always work on Joel's movies. Very nice guy. He's from uh, Yugoslavia, I think. And uh, so... We are set up at the Nakatomi building, which is just right off the Fox lot there on Avenue of the Stars, where the whole thing takes place. And Tony, there, there was this uh, Latino guy that was coming around uh, asking for work. You know, he wasn't, had, had nothing to do with the movie. He was just a guy that kind of came up to the set. And Tony was nice enough to give him a job, um, peeling potatoes and helping out catering because we were shooting almost all nights. So the kid comes in. You know, nobody really knows that Tony's hired him or anything. And till one night he comes in and he's drunk, like pretty fucked up. And uh, so Tony, is, you know, oh, you can't be here. And he fires the guy. And uh, so, you know, he tells him, get off the property. Before the guy leaves, he goes into the prop truck and steals a plastic machine gun. Doesn't work. It's just plastic. Now we're on Avenue of the Stars, Century City, in the, in the Century Plaza Hotel. It just so happened that once this guy's leaving, he's walking down Avenue of the Stars with a machine gun in his hand. The president of the United States is staying at the hotel that oh. night. <laughs> and he comes cruising down Avenue of the Stars, heading toward the hotel with this plastic machine gun. Oh. And I'm going to tell you, every manhole cover pops up and you've never seen Secret Service like this. I mean, it was like, it was, it, it, they were everywhere. And they got this guy and they bring him back to the set. They've got him roped and handcuffed. And he's he's laying across the backseat of one of these, you know, uh, narc cars, you know, all blacked out, whatever. And, uh, and <laughs> I mean, this guy didn't know what hit him. You know, when these, guy, these guys came out of the woodwork and... Um, so he's laying in the car and the guy goes to undo his feet and he kicks one of the Secret Service guys in the face. Oh. No, just, he's just laying his heads on one side of the car, his feet on the other, and he kicks one of these guys. And I'm standing like a few feet away and I'm like, oh shit, you know. And they these guys, they they secret serviced him <laughs> right then and there. And, and they handcuffed him and taped him up and took him away. I never know what happened to him. But that, uh, uh, I bet he doesn't know either. Yeah, that was an exceptionally colorful evening uh, on that on that uh, set. You've had an amazing journey. Yeah, Paul. it's been good. Yeah, an amazing journey. I mean, I mean, just you've. I, it, it boggles my mind that you are not further. I don't know why people aren't aren't beating a path to to your door. You're an amazingly you know, skilled I'll, shooter. I'll be honest with you. The where, where I fucked up or where, what never came to fruition was me was finding that agent that, that believed in me, mm -hmm. you know, like 
Um, I ended up doing another studio film called Paparazzi, right. um, you know, which which did pretty well. I mean, all things like a just shy of seven million dollar studio film that 20th Century Fox released in the theaters. And um, and after that film, uh, I got I got a call from Disney to uh, they brought me in and they wanted to give me that movie Eight Below, which is a the dog sled movie with Paul Walker. Yeah. And I was I was stupid enough to turn it down. I thought, now that I've done another studio film, I can kind of have my pick of the litter, whatever. And that was definitely not the case. And uh, I, I, you know, I remember saying, you know, I don't want to work with dogs, and you know, and I can I had heard that was such a nightmare and everything. And uh, I foolishly turned that movie down, you know. Mm. And uh, I'm st I'm still regretting it, but <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm I'm writing. I'm I'm um, you know pounding away and uh i get a call from my commercial agent who i was convinced thought i was dead um <laughs> out of the blue and he says uh he goes i got something for you he goes the fbi has decided to to create a series an in-house series like csi um for their sheriffs agents uh investigators and and police officers on cybercrime. So they want to know how to proceed, like when you're confiscating a computer, what do you do? What don't you do? Do you put your on airplane mode and do you unplug it? Blah, 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 all of these things. So they gave me, uh, it was supposed to be eight episodes. Now, mind you, I got hired on a commercial contract, which is like almost $10,000 a day. And, uh, so I get hired on this thing to prep and shoot, prep, write, and shoot um, the first four episodes um, on cybercrime, uh, uh, identity theft, cyberbullying, and online fraud. So they give me these case studies. I write the scripts, getting paid for those, plus directing and all that. And we shoot four episodes in Pittsburgh. Goes great. And James Comey, does the intro for this for the department like you know he come you know they film him i didn't film him but somebody else filmed him talking to the camera and saying this is for you guys and we hope you enjoy it. this is a different approach instead of doing a, a a powerpoint we thought this might be more interesting and and it would seep in better you know so you're actually seeing how this stuff works so he does the intro we tag it on to the front of the thing you know and Trump fires James Comey. And since this was part of James Comey's brainchild, the series goes out the window. <laughs> and I'm out. You know, I had four more episodes to shoot at, at almost 10 grand a day. And they were eight hour, eight, eight day shoots, you know. So, so thank you, Donald Trump. I will be the first to say it. that Donald Trump's a motherfucker. <laughs> I couldn't but believe you're, it. But you're not, Paul. And uh, <laughs> that's most important. And, and you're not, Gil. And, and I don't think I am. But uh, but thank you so much for, for, for getting in with us today, Paul. Wow. Yeah. I'm, I'm... What a pleasure. Yeah. Thank so you. We connect, Paul, after a long time. Yeah, Gil. I love you, man. You were so good to me on, on, uh, on Tales, man. I'll never forget it. I still have my, that you actually handed me, I still have my uh, hoverboard uh, marker, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It means a lot to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys are great guys, man. And I, I hope something comes up uh, 
and we can work together. You know. Well, hey, those feelings are, are very, very mutual. And uh, hey, uh, thank you again, Paul, and thank, thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrific Crypt content.